Welcome to a new episode of Time to Shine. This is your host, Oscar Santolaya. Time to Shine presents you interviews with successful public speakers who share their experience and secrets with you in a weekly podcast. Hello and thank you for joining us today. Today I have the pleasure to invite for the first time I guess who has been before in the in the show. It was the episode number two in October last year, and he is Gary Parker, who today we're going to talk about the Winston Churchill's rhetoric. Let me introduce Gary Parker. He has over 20 years of experience as a public speaker. He's a trainer, coach, and mentor to politicians, private and public sector personalities in Finland. He is chairman of the British and Commonwealth Chamber of Commerce in Finland, an institution he founded in 2008. Hello, Gary. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. Hello, Oscar. It's great to be back. Thanks for the, the invite again for, for interview. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And I cannot wait to hear your thoughts about Winston Churchill's rhetoric. Could you tell us a bit more about yourself and what you have been doing lately? Okay, yes. Well, uh, I've been here now uh, in Finland uh, running the Chamber of Commerce um, for uh, eight years or so. Uh, and uh, I'm still active in uh, public speaking and training and mentoring uh, in Parliament and other places uh, here to people who need help with their coaching and uh, business and cross-cultural skills. Um, and uh, I've been enjoying really a fantastic summer. This is sort of second week back, and uh, now we're planning ahead for uh, the big Commonwealth Business Forum in Malta in November and taking a first Finnish delegation of 20 or more business people for the first time. Uh, and also we're just launching our new service called B3CF Insights, um, which helps businesses connect to... Uh, clients, customers, partners, agents, um, and investors um, across the, the Commonwealth and the wider world. So we're hoping to get some business moving. It's been difficult in the economy the last few years uh, since 2008 and all the problems of the Eurozone and so on. But we think there are some good opportunities out there for for business. And in that process, um, part of the, the success, the future success, is to have the good communication skills and uh, the ability to not only tell about your product and service, but to uh, give a good presentation uh, on uh, who you are and, and what you do. So hopefully um, uh, this year will be successful, um, but very, very busy. Very interesting projects going on in your agenda. Gary, reason I invite you for the first time is not only because your episode was one of the most popular in this podcast, but also because I'm sure you have a lot of things to say about Churchill's commemoration this year. There's something special this year. Could you tell us about that? Yes. Um, of course, this year is the 50th anniversary since Winston Churchill's death. Um, and we largely started the 
commemorations and celebrations in, in January this year. There have been some big programs on the TV. Um, just before Christmas last year, Boris Johnson, uh, the Mayor of London, the elected Mayor of London, released uh, a fantastic new uh, biography and commentary on Churchill's legacy called The Churchill Factor, How One Man Made History. Um, so there's a new book out. There are events going on through the Churchill Centre in the UK and in, in America, events going on throughout the world um, to all people, all Churchillians and interested people who uh, want to follow Churchill and, and see where his uh, his legacy is today, um, what it's all about, what's the rhetoric, what did he do, mm-hmm. um, what do we have to be grateful for, if at all, uh, because of Churchill's actions and, and determination, particularly uh, during and after World War II. So that's what it's all about this year. Um, and uh, the family, Churchill family are heavily involved. Uh, Churchill College in Cambridge and all his archives, uh, they're all being opened up and re-examined, reassessed, analysed and explored again. So uh, for somebody like me who was born uh, five or six years after t- Churchill's death, mm-hmm. um, it's quite interesting to see what the new generation, uh, even those younger than me, think about Churchill uh, as the greatest Briton, uh, voted so uh, on the BBC TV some years ago, the greatest Briton in history. Uh, so what did he do? What's it all about? And could you tell us now how much Winston Churchill has influenced your life and also as a speaker? Yeah, uh, of course. Firstly, Churchill as a speaker, um, he had um, a speech impediment. He had a lisp, uh, short tongue. Uh, he wasn't the uh, the most confident speaker when he was young. Uh, he entered Parliament in 1900 in the reign of Queen Victoria. So 115 years ago was when the man started his political career after a career in the army. Um, and he didn't really come to, to maturity and fruition and greatness in terms of public speaking until the advent of really of World War II. Uh, and then you have some of the great speeches. Um, mm. Tomorrow, 20th of August, uh, will be the, uh, uh, the, the 75th anniversary of his uh, The Few speech, which was talking about the Royal Air Force and their role in the Battle of Britain. Uh, when uh, the German Luftwaffe uh, did a, its major attack and offensive on, on the UK. So one of his really famous speeches is, is 75 years old tomorrow. And that probably is one of the best ones to, to look at, to see how the quality of his speaking uh, actually changed. But as to me and the influence on me, I, I think when I was growing up, the, there was no doubt about it. Churchill was certainly the greatest statesman that Britain had had ever produced and had ever known. Um, and from that early age, I had a rather clear idea uh, as to who Churchill was uh, and what he did. And there were lots of books and information available, including ones that Churchill had written himself, his history of the Second World War, Uh, which he won the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature for. Uh, that was, you know, standard schoolboy reading mm. for a Brit and, and certainly an American as well. 
Of course, he was half American, so the Americans have always been very interested in in Churchill. His mother, Jenny Jerome, was uh, was an American citizen, and Churchill was made an honorary American citizen. Um, I mean, I think for me, he he led my country to, I suppose, what we could call a victory against all the odds. Uh, he was against tyranny, uh, and I think as a boy, that was a, a very in the seventies and and eighties. That was a very important thing. And today we see tyrannies uh, on a minor scale across the world. And, of course, we have to be perhaps a bit Churchillian and stand up to them too. And going now to to the rhetoric, how would you summarize the most important things of the legacy of Churchill has in rhetoric? Well, I think a lot of people, a lot of your listeners... Um, Uh, will have heard some of the apocryphal stories about Churchill. Um, there's a famous one where he's on the lavatory uh, and he's informed that the Lord Privy Seal, who's a senior uh, politician in the UK even today, wanted to see him. Um, and he says um, that he is sealed in the privy. Uh, um, we also knew the one where the socialist MP Bessie Braddock allegedly told him he was drunk. Churchill, you're drunk. Mm. And he replied with astonishing rudeness that, yes, madam, and you're ugly, <laughs> but in the morning I shall be sober. <laughs> uh, so there was a lot of humour uh, and uh, satirical uh, stuff that Churchill mentioned. Um, uh, but... Um, Uh, you know, one has to remember he was not just a politician. He he was an active uh, individual. He was a military man. He was a guardsman, cavalry officer, uh, top-level polo player. He was an aviator. He was a gun specialist. He was a bricklayer, a member of the, the city guild for, for bricklayers. And there are lots of pictures of him building walls in his garden at his uh, lovely uh, uh, house of Chartwell. Uh, in in Kent, Kent Sussex area in in Britain, um, but um, his grandson uh, uh, has, has stated um, to Boris Johnson, uh, and also publicly in, in some of his after dinner speeches, Nicholas Soames, um, that um, uh, uh, that I have to tell you, and it says in Boris's words, um, one of Churchill's Conservative ministers was a bugger if you see what I mean, and this is Soames talking, uh, though he was also a great friend of my grandfather. He was always getting caught, but of course in those days the press weren't everywhere and nobody said anything. So he's referring to the man being a, a homosexual, which in those days was illegal. Uh, one day, this man pushed his luck because he was caught rogering a guardsman on a bench in Hyde Park at three o'clock in the morning, And it was February, by the way, so it was a bit cold. Um, this was immediately reported to the chief whip, who is the, the responsible for getting the votes in in the House of Commons and in charge of the MPs, who rang Jock Colville, who was Churchill's private secretary. Jock, said the chief whip, I'm afraid I have some very bad news about so-and-so. It's the usual thing, but the press have got it and it's bound to come out. Oh, dear, said Colville. I really think I should come down and tell the Prime Minister in person. Yes, I suppose you should. So the Chief Whip came down to Churchill, uh, to, uh, 
Churchill's home at Chartwell in Kent. And he walked into Churchill's study where the Prime Minister was working at his upright desk. Yes, Chief Whip, he said, half turning round. How can I help you? The Chief Whip explained the unhappy situation. He'll have to go, he concluded. There was a long pause while Churchill puffed his cigar. Then he said, Did I hear you correctly in saying that so-and-so has been caught with a guardsman? Yes, Prime Minister. In Hyde Park? Yes, Prime Minister. On a park bench? That's right, Prime Minister. At three o'clock in the morning? That's correct, Prime Minister. In this weather? Good God, man, it makes you proud to be British. <laughs> so there we are. I mean, these, these minor things uh, uh, at the time, he, he always took with some light-hearted relief uh, because there was lots of serious stuff uh, going on. Um, but behind all, all the rhetoric and, and the public speaking that Churchill is famous for, you have to remember he was amazingly brave as a young man. Um, and he'd seen bloodshed mm. at first hand, had uh, been fired on uh, on four continents and was one of the first men to go up in an aeroplane. And um, uh, he'd, he'd been a difficult boy at school. He hadn't liked school. He went to Harrow, one of England's top public schools. He wasn't very tall, five foot seven, um, with a 31-inch chest, which isn't very big. And he'd overcome his stammer and his depression and his appalling father. He had a terrible upbringing to become the greatest living Englishman. So there's something in a way for many Brits, perhaps especially myself, that's quite holy and, and magical about this man. Mm. Um, and old ladies love him too because he, he looks like a baby. <laughs> so he looks like their kids or their grandchildren uh, and has this soft soft face which could be quite stern but generally speaking he he was quite small and lovable um in a sort of bombastic uh, perhaps slightly arrogant uh, albeit charming sort of way and and it's that i think that captivates the man for each other so i think churchill must have been a, a very challenging but interesting man to talk to and and get on with uh, and all the people I speak to that, that have met Churchill or known him uh, have uh, very interesting anecdotes and fond memories, even if they'd been on the rough side of his tongue uh, or because or, he was very you know, determined to get his own way. Um, I, I think they've all got fond memories. Wow. Many interesting stories you are sharing. And if I ask you what is the very best of his rhetoric, what could you say? Well, I, I think really if one looks at the, the, the speeches, his role as wartime prime minister from May 1940, you have to bear in mind this was the time when France was about to surrender and Germany had given Britain an ultimatum. Um, what we forget is that the, the, um, the decision to fight Germany, to continue fighting World War II in 1940, was not an easy one. And there was lots of pressure on Churchill to, to appease. Um, and if he didn't get some results quick, then they were going to bring Neville Chamberlain back, who mm. was the ultimate appeasing prime minister. Chamberlain was dying of cancer at the time, so uh, that, that wouldn't have happened. But there was an offer from Hitler 
1940 to um, to do a deal uh, and basically allow him to go across Europe and Britain would not be attacked and, and would stay safe. And Churchill had to argue quite a long time within his own party and within his cabinet, uh, the national coalition government, which included all parties, to uh, get his way or the, the way of fighting through. And it was, in fact, Clement Attlee and his ministers, the Labour Party ministers, that saved Churchill uh, and allowed him to carry on because a lot of the Conservatives didn't like Churchill. They thought he wasn't ready. He was difficult, bombastic. Uh, they remember his mistakes in World War One with the, the Dardanelles campaign, Gallipoli. Uh, that was the definitely the fault of Churchill in, in tactical error. Uh, and they didn't want him want him back. Um, but in the end, the Prime Minister basically told his ministers, Lord Halifax included, uh, to go and stuff it, that we were going to fight. Um, and he said it was clear that the French purpose was to see Signora Mussolini acting as intermediary between ourselves and Hitler. And he was determined not to get into this position. There was liaison between uh, through the Italian ministers who had not been kicked out of London to uh, use the Italians and Mussolini as an intermediary between Britain and Hitler. Uh, and Churchill basically turned that down. But he got through it by just one vote in his own cabinet. So where we are today uh, is one vote. But he used all his energy um, in, in rejecting this offer of mediation uh, from the Italians between... Uh, Hitler uh, uh, and Churchill. So I think um, it, it, it was a good thing. Um, the fact that, that they had this discussion was a good thing in the first place. You know, the, the war could have ended for Britain in 1940, uh, which for all the people that died in it and were affected by it may have been a good thing. Um, but Churchill got through and, and saw the big picture and also had suspicions of the, the tyranny of the potential of the Holocaust and what was happening with the Jews. He had from his intelligence um, feedback as, as to what was really going on that the general public didn't know. And as a result of that, he stood firm. And for until the Americans entered the war, he and Britain stood alone. And so he must have been very convincing <laughs> at the time to get his way and his rhetoric is quite interesting, the speeches at the time, uh, when you look at them, uh, as to how he, he encouraged people and, and saw the, the, the positives out of all of the defeats we were having. The Allies were suffering tremendous defeats against the German war machine. This was before the Japanese came into the war uh, and before the others had joined the Axis side. And is, is there any speech in that moment? Um, well, I think um, in, in regards to the offer from Hitler, there were no public speeches at that time um, as to what the decision uh, actually was. But uh, it says here the best account we have of that period before the decision to carry on with the war was taken. Um, is from the Minister of Economic Warfare's diary, Hugh Dalton. Um, and there seems to be no reason not to trust this. And uh, Dalton writes that Churchill began calmly enough. He said, I've thought carefully in these last days whether it was part of my duty 
to consider entering into negotiations with that man, referring to Hitler. But it is idle to think that if we tried to make peace now, we should get better terms than if we fought it out. The Germans would demand our fleet, the ships. That would be called disarmament, our naval bases and much else. We should become a slave state, though a British government, which would be Hitler's puppet, would be set up under Mosley, Oswald Mosley, our British fascist, or some such person. And there sh where should we be at the end of all that? On the other side, we have immense reserves and advantages. And he ended that speech, uh, or record of that speech, with an almost Shakespearean climax. He was very Shakespearean mm -hmm. in the words he used. He used old words mm -hmm. and complicated words, but he put them into a simple context. And that makes the, the, the rhetoric more interesting because people relate to it from uh, reading Shakespeare or listening to watching Shakespeare's plays. He says, and I am convinced that every one of you would rise up and tear me down from my place if I were for one moment to contemplate parley or surrender. If this Long Island story of ours is to end at last, let it end only when each one of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. And you have to remember that the men in the room listening to that, and they were all men in those days, were so moved. These cabinet ministers, experienced politicians of mm. many years standing, late Victorians and so on. And he was so moved, um, they were so moved, according to Dalton and to Leo Amory, that they cheered and shouted. Mm. And some of them ran around and clapped him on the back. Mm. Churchill had basically quite ruthlessly dramatized and personalized the, the whole debate at that stage of the war. So it, it wasn't just some diplomatic uh, dance or, or minuet. Um, it was very primeval and, and tribal, and people understood from the heart where Churchill was coming from. He moved people's inner feelings and emotions. Um, so by the time the war cabinet resumed that evening, at uh, 7 p.m., the debate was over and Lord Halifax abandoned his appeasement cause and Churchill had the clear and very noisy backing of his full cabinet. So within a year of that decision to fight, not to negotiate, 30,000 British men, women and children had been killed, almost all of them at German hands. So weighing up the alternatives, so humiliating peace or a slaughter of the innocents, it's quite hard to imagine any uh, British politician having the guts to take Churchill's line. So back then in 1940, there was absolutely no one, uh, to my mind, who could have had that kind of leadership ability, not Clement Attlee, the leader of the Labour Party and later Prime Minister, not Neville Chamberlain, the appeasement prime minister, not even Lloyd George, who was the liberal prime minister during the First World War, and certainly not the most serious alternative to Churchill as leader uh, and prime minister, the third Viscount Halifax. Uh, Halifax later went on to be um, uh, ambassador to Washington during the war and do the deals with the Americans. So he carried on being very important. But uh, Churchill, again, after this, 
He then named uh, Lord Halifax the Holy Fox. That was his nickname for, for Lord Halifax, partly because he was very churchy. He looked like a priest or maybe an undertaker, and partly because he loved uh, riding to hounds. He loved fox hunting, and uh, he had a mind of uh, perhaps foxy subtlety, so he was quite a sly fox. But if the fox knew many things, uh, Churchill knew one big thing. Uh, Churchill was always willing to pay the butcher's bill um, because he saw much more clearly than Halifax and the other uh, ministers in Britain at the time. So he had a, a sort of vast and, and reckless moral courage that you don't see in politicians so much today. Um, and he wanted to see that fighting on would be appalling, but surrender would be even worse. So he was between, you know, out of the frying pan and into the fire, between the devil and the deep blue sea. And he picked a difficult path, but it was better than the alternative, uh, as history suggests. So he was right. And uh, I couldn't imagine World War Two or sensible decisions in 1940 without that moment when Churchill's speaking and ebullience and bravado, cavalier approach actually was the right choice. So although we could say Winston uh, was in a way a flawed genius, a genius without judgment sometimes, uh, he made lots of mistakes, but he got the big things right the most important decisions uh, of the middle of the 20th century, he, he picked the right one. So a lot of his, the, the rhetoric we know nowadays depends on these important decisions at difficult times he experienced. Mm, can you tell me if, w where is written or preserved the main part of his rhetoric? He didn't write a book, right? But um, there is a lot that can be still used. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's lots of material on Churchill. There's Alan Bullock's uh, there's famous biographies of him done many years ago. There's the one I've mentioned already by Boris Johnson, which is in the shops today in, in paperback. Um, but he gave Churchill, when he died, he'd already bequeathed all of his papers to uh, the Churchill Centre and Churchill College in Cambridge, which is obviously named after him. So at Cambridge University, there's a vast archive of everything, uh, which is open to historians and, and to, to students and interested parties. Uh, there's lots of activity in America as well. Um, so online you can find a lot at the churchillcenter.org um, and you know, just Google that and, and you'll find a lot of useful information, um, including details of all the events, mm. all the anniversaries. Uh, as I said, tomorrow is the anniversary of the, the few speech Um, which was one of his very great ones during the war as a tribute to the, the, the men in the Spitfires and the Hurricanes that held back the air invasion of the Luftwaffe. Um, and uh, that, that battle was concluded uh, in the summer and early autumn of, of 1940. Uh, and, uh, you know, we shall fight them on the beaches and 
all of that comes from from that era. So all of his speeches are well recorded, well collected. Uh, there are books about his anecdotes. Uh, the The Wicked Wit of Winston Churchill is one book that's worth looking at. That's got all the funnies in and and all the personal attacks on different people and mm-hmm. personalities around the world. Uh, very readable man. He he's not a, a sort of boring diplomat style mm. person. He he's a very um, uh, witty, satirical, determined character. Uh, yes, he could be grumpy. Yes, he could have black dog, his famous uh, depressions, and he'd go into a sulk for ages, a bit like a spoilt child or a schoolboy, uh, not getting his sweeties at the right time. But he uh, he'd always pull out some rabbit out of a hat like a magician, uh, and actually get everybody going again. So lots of ups and downs, but well recorded and and easy to uh, to follow his life. Um, he actually had this amazing foresight, almost like a clairvoyant. Um, and, and he, in many respects, lived a little bit in the shadow in the early years of his ancestor, um, the Duke of Marlborough. The first Duke of Marlborough won the Battle of Blenheim, Blenheim uh, in, in what is now Germany. And they built, as a result of winning that battle, that great victory, Blenheim Palace, where Churchill was born. And so Churchill wrote a book, very interesting biography of his ancestor, uh, I think it's John, John Churchill, John Spencer Churchill. Uh, and you, you know, you see the, the admiration he had for, for those people. He also wrote, despite their difficulties, a biography of his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, but died at the early age of about 45. Uh, they didn't get on, and Churchill didn't get the chance to prove that he was a worthy boy, a worthy son, uh, until much uh, after his father's death. So he, there's hang-ups about the father. Um, there's reverence and respect for other ancestors who were successful military fighters. Uh, so a lot of material under his own pen and by others. And I'm sure that tradition will continue. Uh, I'm sure Boris Johnson won't be the last biographer of Churchill. Uh, everything will be reassessed. And I'm sure the the other parties, other countries uh, in World War II will have other angles to suggest as to what Churchill's legacy and, and mm. rhetoric uh, have in the world today. And if we come back to these times, do you know some contemporary speakers who you see a clear influence from Churchill? Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, Boris Johnson, he's uh, Churchill's biographer and, and now a, a conservative politician, mayor of London. He is very Churchillian oh. at times in the way he speaks, and he's quite a, a maverick sort of character. So I think he has been heavily influenced by Churchill and, and can deliver the gravitas and the sagacity of of the words uh, that um, Churchill might have used in, in that situation. But of course, today we're much more politically correct. I mean, Churchill's um, comments and speeches and general views would not make sense to many people today. Um, he was a man of his time. Uh, and, and I think uh, politicians have to be much more careful today as to what they think and how they express it. 
in views because everything is minutely analyzed by journalists, by the media, uh, by Facebook and Twitter and, <laughs> and you know, this trolling and, and attacks. I don't think Churchill would survive today as a yeah. public speaker. Uh, it's much harder. <clears throat> Um, but there are examples there of, of good public speaking. And I, I guess Boris Johnson is one. Uh, to some degree, Margaret Thatcher was, was quite Churchillian, uh, certainly as a military leader with her military hat on. Um, and then there are other contemporaries um, who, who still influence world politics today, uh, such as Gandhi. Gandhi was a great speaker, although they were from opposite sides of the political spectrum, for sure. Um, Churchill being the sort of imperialist, uh, uh, quite happy to have empire and, and later Commonwealth and lots of things going on there and British influence worldwide. Uh, I, I think Gandhi was, was another one who, who had great rhetoric. Uh, and that is followed up perhaps by the the more modern Gandhi family today. Sonia Gandhi, as a public speaker uh, from India, is very highly regarded. I've heard her speak on more than one occasion. And she, she's got it. There's something there that you want to listen to what the next sentence is or what the conclusion is. So to be gripping is the challenge for today's politicians and public speakers. How do you keep people interested to the last moment or to the punchline? Uh, Churchill did that, and maybe a handful. There might be 10 or 20 senior people in the world who can do it, but it's possible. Mm -hmm. And something I forgot to ask you, did he ever had a speechwriter? That's an interesting one. As far as we know, no, he didn't. Mm -hmm. He used to, um, uh, he didn't sleep much. <laughs> um, so, so Churchill would, uh, when he got into his car um, with his, his protection officer, he'd fall asleep and have these catnaps. So then, of course, he'd be up most of the night and he'd call his secretaries. He had three or four regular secretaries, both at, uh, at uh, Chartwell, his house, and in London, in Downing Street, and in the Churchill War Rooms, as they're now called, the old cabinet war rooms under Downing Street, which you can visit. Uh, uh, as a tourist um, he'd, he'd write his speeches there in a little room but the, there's a famous story of him being in the bath <laughs> at, at Chartwell and, and he'd have a, a curtain around the bath and he'd be in the bath playing with his rubber duck and his sponge whatever <laughs> and he'd start dictating at like uh, midnight to four o'clock in the morning to successive secretaries these speeches Uh, and he did it all himself. And then he'd amend them by hand mm. in quite some detail and then have them typed up. Mm. And they'd be expected to be done within hours, ready for delivery later that day in the House of Commons or wherever he was speaking. So he did it all himself. And, you know, I, I'm not a fan of speech writers. I, I, I have been one myself and, and written speeches for other people. Um, sometimes you just need ideas. And Churchill got ideas from the people around him. And he had a very broad set of people to talk to. He had you know, members of the royal family, uh, Mountbatten, uh, Lord Mountbatten of Burma, as he later was. He had uh, um, his own national coalition cabinet people. Um, he had lots of friends and acquaintances. And they had dinners in those days. You'd go to mm. dinner with somebody every night or you'd host a dinner yeah. and they'd talk and mull over things. 
and he had ambassadors and civil servants. So he drew ideas from them and he would ask them pertinent questions. You know, he, he, for example, with Bletchley Park, which was the code cracking center, uh, famous, made famous by Alan Turing and, and the recent film, but Oscar winning film with Eddie Redmayne playing a part of Alan Turing. Um, uh, I, I feel that he, he, you know, Churchill used the pe the clever people around him. He wasn't afraid of people who were more educated than him or perhaps more intelligent. Mm -hmm. And he, he was good to pick up ideas. He loved new things. Like today, I mean, he would love the World Wide Web and Tim <laughs> Berners-Lee and the internet. He'd be asking questions, you know, how can we use it? What's it good for? Will this help us with our defense, security, foreign policy? He'd be using every new tool at his disposal. Gary, could you now share with us your favorite quotation? Well, I, I, last time I gave you one quotation. Um, I mean, there are, there are so many, uh, the <laughs> apocryphal stories uh, that, that you have. Um, but I, I think I'd like to do one. It might not be my favorite quotation, mm -hmm. but it's a lovely mm -hmm. quotation by Churchill. Um, he was a romantic a real romantic, and he was madly in love with, with Clemmy, Clementine Churchill, his wife, uh, th throughout their, their marriage of, of nearly 60 years. They, mm. they were married for 67 years wow. and uh, two years uh, engagement. But um, uh, he, he wrote to her, um, and of course he was away from her a lot around the world and globetrotting and, and then as prime minister, they didn't have a lot of time together, but she was his big supporter uh, and, and backed him up all the way. But he wrote to her once, I think a lot about you, my darling pussy. That was his nickname for her. And rejoice that we have lived our years together and still have some years of expectation in this pleasant vale. I have been sometimes a little depressed about politics and would like to have been comforted by you. But I feel that this has been a great experience and adventure to you and that it has introduced a new background to your life and a larger proportion. And so I have not grudged you your long excursion, but now I do want you back. <laughs> She'd gone on holiday and, and he was missing her. Oh. And I think that sums up, in a way, the man, the, the human side of him, that he was very um, uh, in need of support from his family and, and his wife in particular. And, and he got that. I mean, he didn't have a brilliant relationship with all of his children, um, but he did with his youngest, with Mary Soames, who, uh, who was the last surviving child. Uh, and I think that, you know, Churchill knows the... In that quotation, the awful demands he's made upon his wife. Uh, I think he, he knows that it, life must have been pretty bad for her at times with all his antics and his responsibilities of state and, and uh, as war leader. But um, he, he had more than enough of her absences from time to time and, and badly needs her. So he did need things. He was a very needy person and he needed attention. He needed love. He, like the rest of us, everybody needs a friend. Um, and he was very lucky to have Clementine and, and the family to support him in, in these major, uh, tasks uh, as war leader, prime minister and leader of, of a political party. Mm -hmm. 
Así usé a Romantic Quotation. <laughs> Could you now recommend us one book that has inspired or influenced you? You think it's a good read for us? Well, I mean, in fact, that there are several, but uh, if you want the current full picture of where Churchill is today, the book I've mentioned, uh, Boris Johnson's uh, mm -hmm. The Churchill Factor, as uh, published by, by Hodder, Hodder and Staunton, uh, uh, and is very current. I, I think that's where most people should start because it's easy to read. But Churchill's own writings are, are worth it. His history uh, in several volumes, seven, six or seven volumes of the Second World War, uh, for those that are interested in military history, are worth reading. Uh, and then his speeches. Um, there are many other biographies, mm. but many of them are out of date now. So, yes. so this is very recent, right? This is very recent. Yeah, this was published um, uh, the end of last year, mm -hmm. uh, and in paperback from from this year. But um, and the London Evening Standard have said it's the must-read biography of the year, um, and the Washington Post said it's filled with vivid observations. And I would agree with that. Mm. It's it's. Very well researched and lots of new material uh, mm -hmm. inside it. So, so start there and and then branch out to all <laughs> oh, yeah. the other you know kilometers worth of sure. uh, publication. Yeah, it sounds like very interesting book. Gary, finally, could you share with us a routine to shine, an exercise, something practical that you recommend to do us daily or weekly? Well, in the morning, when you're brushing your teeth, um, before or after, uh, smile at yourself in the mirror. You've got to start the day with a smile. Uh, and if you've got a partner, uh, give him or her a kiss. Um, and, and that will leave you feeling hopefully a little more buoyant for, for, for the rest of the day. But for speaking technique, the best thing is to try and speak slowly and clearly Um, and if you have a tremor in your voice, um, some people say, take some Dutch courage, have a drink like Churchill would have done, <laughs> whiskey and soda or <laughs> glass of champagne. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but I do recommend, like many opera singers do, eat ice cream. Okay. <laughs> have some ice cream. It nicely chills and cools the vocal cords and your speech. It feels good when you eat ice cream. Most people love ice cream or sorbet or something. Uh, and, and then you're, you're, you'll be ready for action with clear voice and uh, with a positive feeling. And n yes, never go into a speech hungry. Always have a little bit of something light to eat beforehand, nothing heavy, uh, and your voice will sound better and you will feel better while you're talking. So go for it. Thank you very much. Gary was an excellent interview. A lot of things that you have told us about Churchill, the history side and the speaking side that we are we're very interested to hear all of this could you finally tell us how we can learn more about you follow you what is the best way to know yes um, well you can uh, follow me or connect to me on LinkedIn uh, and you can follow uh, the work at the British and Commonwealth Chamber of Commerce uh, in Finland on b3cf.com or b cccf.fi uh, and come and join us feel free to contact me or email me through the details on that site I'm happy to talk to people and uh, happy to come and train and speak and educate if possible But thank you very much Oscar it's been delightful as ever thanks a lot Gary all the best 
Dear listeners of Time to Shine, this is the end of today's episode. If you like our show, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or for more information, visit our website www.timetoshinepodcast.com Welcome to listen to us again next week.